Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Marielle Giletto. Marielle is a shareholder at Parker McKay and serves as the chair of Parker McKay's corporate department. Marielle's area of practice is corporate governance and compliance, business formation, business transaction, commercial lending, outside general counsel, and more. In 2019, Marielle was named one of the best 50 women in business awards and was one of the SJ Biz's 20 under 40 recipients. Marielle received her JD from Villanova University and her bachelor's in finance from Rutgers University. Today, Marielle will discuss the steps individual investors should take when screening private placement investment opportunities and also discusses the legal aspect of capital raising. Marielle, thank you for being here today. We very much appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. Outside of stocks and bonds, there are a lot of private placement opportunities available to individual investors. What are some potential red flags that investors should look out for when screening an investment opportunity? That's a good question, Tom. So each individual opportunity presents its own red flags, right? So, but generally there are some big ticket items. Sometimes there is an unwillingness or inability to properly understand the competitive landscape that the investors are entering. And sometimes the companies don't really have a well-thought-out marketing plan. I've often advised clients that they need one of their biggest hurdles to get over before they start looking for investors is they need to have a business plan, right? They need to show the investors what they're investing in because diligent investors, and we'll get to that, I guess, a little bit later about accredited investors, want to have the data. They want to do the diligence. So they need to see your thought out marketing plan. Some other red flags are maybe some peculiar or abrasive personalities in the management company, maybe overstating market potential or relying solely on intellectual property as a major selling point. Also, really look at the managers because are they credible? Are they serious about executing the vision of the company? So these are all things to consider when you're thinking about investing and should really meet with the managers and look through those documents to make sure that you know what you're investing in. Why is it important for investors to actually get face time with the company or the person providing the investment opportunity? And then once they're in front of them, what's some good questions that we should ask them? So there's a cliche, right? That investments are made into the people and not the company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the company can have tremendous potential, but when you look behind that paper, what looks good on paper, you need to get to the dedicated managers and the credible managers and how are they going to execute that plan. So they may have good intentions, but then when the persons are there to execute those intentions, it may not even get off the ground. So FaceTime is sometimes necessary to get to the root of the managers or the persons behind the investments sincerity. Some questions you might want to ask, well, of course, every transaction is different and they vary based on the opportunity in the transaction. But you might want to just discuss some big picture questions, their vision, their goal for the company. Again, 
getting into the details of that business plan. Talk about some of the sponsor's experience, their track records, what they did to evaluate the risk of the transaction, and what prompted this need for additional investments. So what documents should the investment sponsor be providing the prospective investor? They should provide the entity documents, maybe a certificate of incorporation or organization, the bylaws, the operating agreement, any resolutions that were issued to authorize stock. We are also looking for some capital raising documents, a term sheet, a private placement memo, a subscription agreement, form notes, any ancillary documents. Again, projections and their marketing and business plan. So offering documents, they can be overwhelming. How can Mm -hmm. an attorney add value in the document review process? The best value you get from an attorney is taking that legalese, that the big T's and C's that you see in all these documents, the boilerplate, and turning it into English for you, something that's manageable, right? Explaining the practical effects of the documents that you're about to sign. And if your attorney isn't able to do that, you might want to find someone else that can help you with that. You have a large document in front of you, but what does that mean for you? Because they can spout off definitions and they can give you like SEC regs, but at the end of the day, What's the practical effect for you in investing in this company? Sometimes also the attorney may be valuable because they can talk with your accountant and the accountant and your attorney may come up with a plan for you or advice for you on whether or not to invest or whether or not to maybe this is a good opportunity or maybe this is something you might want to take a backseat on. Right. And on top of that, there's also a lot of tax consequences and we will touch on this later, but A lot of people investing have a large tax liability. There's tax consequences to investing that they have to think about as well. So that is a good point to relay your CPA in and really create a team to try to put you in the best position. Absolutely. We work with accountants all the time because a lot of these investments are tax driven. So if the client wanted to review these documents on their own prior to engaging counsel, what are some items in the operating agreement that they should look out for? Oftentimes, what investors go for immediately is the waterfall provision. How are the profits going to be distributed? So you want to look for, is that what was represented to you? Is their business plan, are their marketing ideas exactly as written in their legal documents? So you want to make sure that they match. You want to look for different classes of interest too. Are you getting paid last? Are you getting paid first? Is there a preferred equity? Are the managers, those persons that put themselves as the front of the business, do they have any skin in the game? Are they going to require additional capital contributions? And if the case, can you out if you don't think that the company is going the right direction? If you can't get out under the documents, can you get out under the law rather than under the documents? How are deadlocks decided by the managers? Is it something that you might get tied up in litigation about? Those are some things that you just want to take a close look at One, how the money is going to be distributed. And two, if you don't like how the money is going to be distributed, can you get out? Marielle, I know this is a complex topic, but for those of us who might not know, can you give a high-level overview of what a waterfall is? That's the distribution of profits. So when you invest your money, invest your capital, there's going to be some profit, hopefully, that gets returned. You should receive your capital back. And then on top of that, there would be a return on your investment. And oftentimes there is incentives for 
some stockholders who invest earlier to get a higher return. There are some incentives maybe for the managers to get a higher return. And then there also may be, depending on the structure, if after the investors receive their return of capital, maybe other persons are entitled first, maybe other persons are entitled to a return later on. So it's how that allocation of profits is distributed to the individual stockholders. So we keep hearing this term thrown around the industry and it's preferred return. Can you break down what a preferred return is? And does preferred return mean that it's guaranteed? No, there's nothing is guaranteed. But what a preferred return means is that you have priority over the returns. So if there's $100 to be distributed and you have an 8% preferred return, you get the first $8. So let's discuss the subscription agreement. Are investors legally obligated to invest in the project once they sign the agreement? So generally, the execution of the subscription agreement is a promise to purchase the interest. But this is another example of when it would be good for an attorney to look at those subscription agreements because there may be some carve-outs in the subscription agreements, right? So for instance, there may be a carve-out that states that if the company doesn't receive a minimum amount of the investment, then they do not have to get all of the investments from all of the investors. And in that situation, the subscription agreement would become void. Let's move on to private placement memorandums or PPM. What is it and why are they important? Think of it as a disclosure statement of the company. It's really designed to give prospective investors a detailed look into the company and its operations before they invest. They usually include a summary of the investment opportunity, a disclosure of the risk factors, the intended use of the proceeds, likely expenses. They can include the backgrounds of the management team and a description of the securities being offered. Let me say that the SEC does require that the information provided in the PPMs are true and that they do not omit any material facts necessary to prevent the statements from being misleading. So it's important because if Direct it correctly and is in accordance with SEC regulations. It gives you that snapshot of the company that you're really looking for. Most people are used to Wall Street returns, 8 and 10% or whatever they're happy and accustomed to. Alternative investments, however, can often have a very attractive projected returns. Do mm-hmm. a lot of your clients who are not familiar with this once they receive their first alternative investment packet, do they often dismiss these opportunities because the return seemed too good to be true? Well, I think we have to make the distinction between their first investment package ever and those that are using these alternative investments. I think the first time an investor invests in anything, they have apprehensions. And I think that's only natural. But as time goes on and they're more used to seeing these type of projects, they have a level of comfort or security. So I don't think that they shy away from them, maybe because they think they're too good to be true, but it's just something that they're not generally comfortable with. My clients that usually invest in these type of transactions are comfortable, and these are something that they do routinely. And that is important because as we get to the accredited investor definition, 
those are the type of persons that you need and you want in your investment anyway. I wouldn't necessarily turn down an investment just because it's the first time I'm seeing it. I'm taking myself out as an attorney, but as a person investing, if I had the sophistication to analyze the data that's presented to me and make a good decision about whether or not this is something I would like to place my money in. So I think the apprehension more comes in, hey, am I willing to breach out of my comfort zone in the stock market and get into something less comfortable? And I just need to be comfortable to do that for myself. Now, some offerings, and we touched on this, require that the investors have to be accredited. Can you walk Mm -hmm. our listeners through what an accredited investor is? Yes. So there is a specific definition in the SEC. Recently, the SEC has proposed broadening the definition. And let me step back for a second. Like you said, the reason why you need to be accredited is because if you want to claim an exception from registering with the SEC under certain of the regulations, your investors need to be accredited investors. So what is an accredited investor? If you're an individual, it means that you have income of at least $200,000 individually or $300,000 jointly for each of the prior two years, or a net worth exceeding a million dollars, excluding the value of your residential home, or you're a general partner, executive officer, or director of the offering entity. For a business to be deemed an accredited investor, it has to be a bank, an insurance company, or an investment company, or an employee benefit plan or other company with assets over $5 million or a company in which all the equity owners are are accredited investor. But like I said, there was some proposals put back put forth in December which would broaden the definition to include knowledgeable employees of certain funds. It also allow for spousal equivalents to pool the finances to qualify and family offices with a minimum of 5 million dollars in assets. So we will see if those get pushed through. So there'll be a lot more accredited investors then, correct? There would, yeah. Hopefully, with the broadened definition, there could be a larger pool of people that would qualify for that definition of accredited investor. So let's say I hear about this, I go, I check my 401k and my other savings, and I have over a million dollars. I'm an accredited investor, right? Am I good to go invest in these deals or do I have to take steps for it to become official? You don't have to take steps, but the company that you're investing in may have to take steps to verify that you are an accredited investor. And in that case, you may need to show financial documents to the company or to a third party that the company sources out that diligence check. Sometimes you're required to submit tax filings, personal balance sheets or credit reports your net worth statement, or even an opinion letter from your accountant verifying the accreditation status. So there's not a form that you would fill and say, if I check these boxes, I'm an accredited investor. It's more of you need to prove to the company that you're investing in that you satisfy that definition. If I'm investing as a limited partner in a private offering, what liabilities am I exposed to? So the beauty of the limited partnership, the LLC form, is that you're shielded from personal exposure. Again, this is why it's good for an attorney to take a look at the documents to ensure that you're not breaking that corporate shield. 
but technically what's at risk is the loss of your investment, your initial capital that was invested or any additional funds that you put up. But again, it's always good to look to have an attorney review the documents to make sure that that is the limit of your risk. And then how liquid are these type of investments typically? Not really liquid. And that is one of the downsides against investing in you know, the NASDAQ or the any other stock exchange because there's no market. It's a private market, right? So it's oftentimes hard to value the shares of these investments. But at the same time, that's again why you would want to have an attorney look at the documents to see if there's a strategy or evaluation for your exit if there's a point where you would like to sell your partnership interests. So do limited partners or LPs as we call them enjoy any tax benefits? Generally they do. And again, we talked about partnering with your accountant. And I always suggest that individuals speak with their accountant to get tax advice related to their individual situation. But as a general matter, limited partnerships are pass-through entities, so they do not have the double taxation that a traditional C-Corp would experience, a shareholder in a C-Corp. And the losses can be used to offset other passive income that the limited partner may have or the investor may have. The other benefit is that the limited partner does not have to pay the self-employment tax. Let's move on to the role of the sponsors. Why would the sponsor or deal provider choose to raise fund from investors just doing the project on their own? So I can't say all the reasons because again, they are individual projects that have individual facts and circumstances and different needs and varying levels of sponsors that have limitations on their equity themselves. But some of the reasons may include the fact that those primary investors just do not have sufficient funds or they are not willing to put all of their money into one company. The other reason is that if they're getting traditional debt financing, that the debt financing may not be sufficient for their capital needs. So if there's a $20 million projection of capital that they need, but the bank's only willing to invest 10 and the original sponsors only have $5 million, you have a gap of $5 million that you need to fund. And so it's not uncommon for a company to go out and seek additional investors. So if I have a great idea, can I go on Facebook or other social media sites as LinkedIn and tell everyone what my idea is and ask them for money to invest? Well, first, I wouldn't tell anyone what your idea is unless you have the proper intellectual property protections in place, first and foremost. But since this podcast is really about money, I wouldn't recommend doing that. And the reason I wouldn't recommend doing it is because it's not specifically defined, but postings like that may be considered a general solicitation in the eyes of the SEC. And if it is, you can't rely on a 506B exemption because that rule explicitly prohibits general solicitation. 504 also prohibits general solicitation unless you hit certain requirements. And if this is the first time that you're seeking investments, oftentimes you wouldn't have checked those SEC regulations sufficiently to make sure that you're checking all the boxes and complying with the regulation. Rule 506C does allow general solicitations, but again, the solicitation of 506C requires that you take steps to verify that the persons that you're soliciting to are accredited investors. So there's a lot of ways that you can get tripped up because if we go back to the premise of the SEC regulations is that you have to be registered with the SEC in order to offer your shares for sale. So 
it is not a great idea to start posting on social media that you're looking for money. So we touched on this, but can you mm-hmm. tell us the difference between Regulation D or Reg D as we call it, 506B and 506C? So a 506B permits a sponsor to raise an unlimited amount of funds from an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 sophisticated investors, but without the freedom to solicit the offering generally. 506C also allows the sponsor to raise an unlimited amount of funds but only from accredited investors that it took reasonable steps to verify. But the benefit, the major distinction between B and C is that 506C, my sponsor can solicit generally. Why is it important from the sponsor's position to know if a potential investor is accredited or not? First and foremost, it's because it's required by the SEC in order to claim certain exemptions from registration. And second, because accredited investors are generally easier to work with. As I touched on before, they're more sophisticated about what a transaction is supposed to look like and what they are looking to get out of the transaction. Plus, they can be helpful to the company in making decisions or providing stability. You as the sponsor may be able to point to a specific accredited investor and suggest to the other investors, hey, look, so-and-so is investing. He or she is very smart and knows how to invest in these deals. So. Initially, it's because of SEC requirements, but from another practical standpoint, it may be helpful to your organization. So since the SEC is really easy and fun to work with, why do sponsors (laughs) typically want to go for an exemption? The SEC is burdensome and kind of scary for a lot of people. You have to follow a lot of regulations and there are a number of forms that need to be completed and failure to follow the regulations to a T or complete their forms could subject you to fines. So in an effort to provide an alternative to the cumbersome nature of the SEC process, exemptions allow you as a company to raise equity without going through the processes established by the SEC. So why would it be important to register for an exemption, even if you're just asking friends and family to invest? Because, again, the general premise of the Securities Act is to require all offerings of securities to be registered or exempt. So even smaller rounds of capital raises should be filed with the SEC. And at what point in the process should the sponsor get their attorneys involved? So the sponsor should get their attorneys involved as soon as they have a business plan in place. When they're ready to execute on providing that business plan and the investment opportunity to the investors. As I said before, investors really are interested in where their money is going. What are you putting your money to? Then the attorneys can draft the legal documents and give advice related to the SEC requirements before you go out and start soliciting funds from investors. So, is a private placement memorandum or a PPM, as we alluded to earlier, necessary for all deals? Not necessary for all deals. Don't need a private placement memorandum if the offering is less than $5 million or in some instances when all the investors are accredited. But as I said before, they're a good idea because it gives the, the investors a snapshot. So you have one place where the investors or you can point to to say, this is what the waterfall will look like. These are the background of the manager's it's sort of like the cheat sheet for the deal. When I'm raising money, can I pay commission to someone to find investors for me? 
You could, but you have to ensure that that person is a registered broker dealer. They have to be licensed and registered with FINRA, the SEC, and sometimes state security regulators. And if not, then if a person comes to you and says, I want a commission and they're not registered with the SEC, that could lead to some potential issues for you, the sponsor. Also, because of all those licenses that the broker dealer has to obtain, they usually charge a hefty fee for finding investors. And then Marielle, I just want to ask you three rapid fire questions. What was your first job? First job ever, not right out of college or internship, like when you were younger? Oh, I worked for my parents. Coat check girl. Coat check girl. And what lessons did that teach you? Well, I mean, coat check girl didn't teach me much, but working in a family business and working in the catering industry taught me the value of hard work. I mean, I was working at a very young age. I wasn't making enough to have my own money, but I always knew the the importance of making money. What book are you reading right now? What got you here won't get you there. It's about leadership qualities. What makes a good leader? Who is your favorite person to follow on social media? Like, does someone really motivate you? You know, they help you get out of bed, or maybe if you're in a rut, you go and you read their posts or anything like that. So I follow Mika Brzezinski, Know Your Value, and I follow Rachel Hollis. Those are the two that I follow. Mika Brzezinski is a host on Morning Joe and also has her own separate website. It's called Know Your Value, and it's related to women in the workforce and understanding women's value in the workforce. And Rachel Hollis, I just started following her, but I saw her on the Today Show, and I just thought some of the advice that she gives for daily routines and being a mom and working, they're pretty practical. All right. Marielle, thank you so much for the time and for joining us today. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. You can call my office. My direct number is 856-810-5829. Or you could email me at M-G-I-L-E-T-T-O at ParkerMcKay.com. It's M-C-C-A-Y.com. Thanks, Mary. We appreciate it. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.